Thank you. We are talking about something that is, um, is sensitive. Um, so I would say this sermon is PG-13. <laughs> um, not kidding. It's PG-13. It's not like, you know, not, not dramatically so. So don't feel like, you know, you got to, uh, <laughs> like, it's not rated R, right? <laughs> but, um, and I'm not going to be cussing, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> my mom can't. Um, uh, but the, but it is a conversation, it's a sermon about sex. Um, so I want to make sure I say that out loud, um, because I told you guys, and so I told you all, no question is off limits in this sermon series. Um, so just know that it's not a conversation, it's not the sex talk, or I'm not teaching anybody how to do such things. Um, however, it is a conversation about, um, our scriptural understanding of sex. So um, I wanted to say that out loud just in case there were some folks who were like, hmm, you know what? I don't know that I'm quite ready for my young minor human to hear such things. You get to have a moment right now to, uh, to go volunteer in children's ministry. So... <laughs> Uh, so it's the first week of the You Asked For It sermon series. This is easily uh, my favorite sermon series of every year because it gives us an opportunity to kind of, as a family, um, process some unique and challenging things. Um, but it also, I think as a pastor, allows me to have a, um, a bit of a gauge on what's going on in the lives of members of our church family. Um, there, there's, we sat as a teaching team this week processing this. Questions are great in terms of being able to answer them clearly and directly, which is awesome in terms of even doing a sermon series, but there's also opportunities for discipleship based upon the question, right? Sometimes there are questions that like, oh yeah, we're definitely going to answer that, but this is not discipleship. A sermon is not discipleship. That, this is, this helps us to all have common language, common understanding of the Bible, so we live it out together well, but this is not help somebody grow into deeper depths into their soul. That's walking with somebody, having conversation with individuals to help to kind of attach intimately what needs to be attached and help expose intimately what needs to be exposed. That's discipleship. This is a great moment for us all to have an understanding so that we're moving together in one direction. Right? That's what this is. So I love this sermon series because it allows for both. Um, it allows for an opportunity. Um, and so the person who asked this question, um, ultimately, I didn't get a sense we need to have a deeper conversation. Um, but it was a deep question. <laughs> uh, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to paraphrase. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm going to show you what the title of the sermon is. Because God made it. <laughs> <laughs> because God made it, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Um, but I actually want you to go to the third, uh, the, like, not the next picture, but the slide that is red. 
Because I'm just going to paraphrase the question. It was, a, it was a question that had a good depth of explanation to it. But if I were to paraphrase it, I would say it like this. The purity movement led to a culture of toxic shame and unhealthy view of sex, especially for young women. Without that as a tool, how do we continue to encourage biblical sexual morality? That's kind of the gist of what the question was. So there's, so we're not talking about, this is going to feel weird saying this, we're not talking specifically about biblical sexual morality. That's not necessarily what the sermon is. The sermon answering the question, how do we encourage that? So that's ultimately for us as believers, which I actually feel like is a, is a better thing than even just talking about sexual morality, is to say, how do we as believers encourage it in one another and in individuals who we are walking with in discipleship in our own children? For those of us who have children who are growing, the reality is some of our parents were not well equipped for having the sex talk, not for real. And so we got the, just don't do it, <laughs> right? <laughs> like basically, right? Just don't do it. If we got that, just don't do it. Um, and, um, and so many of us, I'm 37, but many of us who are in that millennial, Gen X, and younger space, we grew up with some anxiety around sex. If we were trying to actually honor God with this part of our life and then not knowing how to other than just don't do it, like, uh. <laughs> so the question is, how, without it as a tool, how do we continue to encourage biblical sexual morality? Um, so I want to pray about that and then we'll jump in. So Father God, we thank you for the opportunity as a family to dive deep into um, what can be challenging subjects, but there is nothing that um, overwhelms you, and there's nothing that's challenging for you. So, Holy Spirit, we know that you already are in the room. You've already invited us into your presence. We've already invited you to have authority in our lives. And so, because of that, we also ask that you would reveal to us what it is that you see here, not our fears, not our desires, but what you see. May we have your vision here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you go back to that picture for me now? Um, I do want to make sure I highlight this. If you grew up with um, a strong push for sexual morality and purity, um, more than likely, it's particularly if you were a young woman, you had shame heaped upon you as a, as a mechanism for actually maintaining purity, so to speak. And, and that's honestly been throughout human history. We'll talk a little bit about human history. It just did not impact guys the same way. It just didn't. And that's not because we were immune to the shame. It was legitimately not put on us. <laughs> For the most part, if we're honest, women have carried the weight of sexual morality 
for not just the Christian religion, but for several religions and several cultures. It's a part of why there are stricter rules as it relates to what women wear. There's like five paragraphs in the school handbook <laughs> about what girls can and cannot wear, and boys, like, just make sure your pants are up, fellas. <laughs> Let's just be real. <laughs> it's, it's okay for us to be honest about that's what that is, and it's because as human cultures, we have placed upon women the burden of being responsible for sexual morality for all of the human species. And I think we cannot actually move forward with this conversation without being honest about that. There's some historic things that are a piece of that puzzle which we'll talk about, but I want us to see this picture because at the end of the day, this is more than just how do we do sexual morality well how do we teach that well? This is also how do we lift the burden of shame off of our sisters because that is not something that it is in the will of the Father for them to carry. This is something that we all get to carry because all of us represent Christ in the earth. And for us to expect only half of our siblinghood to carry this and the other half blissfully skipping unaware that burdens the body of Christ in a way that it's not designed to be burdened right I want to say that out loud any pain in the body of Christ is a pain to the body of Christ whether or not we're acknowledging it or not we're limping as it relates to sexual morality what I mean by that is we're putting all the weight on one side, and that has some impact on our spinal cord, <laughs> right? Right? If we continue with that idea, we're limping, expecting only one foot to carry all the weight here, and that's not the will of the Father. So this yes is how do we encourage sexual morality, but also how do we lift the shame off of our sisters, lift the weight, and carry that more evenly? So, uh, before we even go further here, this right, the question is how do we, go, go ahead to that next slide because I want to just say the question again. How, okay, without that as a tool, how do we continue to encourage biblical sexual morality? I think it's pretty clear now, the purity movement, that tool, we need to go on and bury that one. It didn't do its job. <laughs> okay, we're going to bury it. But there are some things about that movement that we actually still do need to carry, and how do we do so? So before we start talking about that and for anyone, if I'm having this conversation with anyone, there is truth that there's some foundational things that we have to set out first. The first one is this. Before we even get into Scripture, we have to believe and agree God designed creation with purpose. Here's why I'm saying that first. This isn't a manipulative move. I'm not trying to get people to buy in first, but here's the truth. If you don't believe that, then this doesn't actually work. <laughs> Sexual morality doesn't, it doesn't have a space if you don't believe that. Because the truth is, 
You can literally do whatever you want to do. You really can. That's a biblical thing. God, in God's wisdom, he designed, he designed this thing where you get to do whatever you want to do. He just has a purpose in a way that actually aligns with what he designed. But you can do whatever you want. So we have to actually first believe and agree with the concept God designed creation with purpose. The second thing we would have to agree to is that God's design for creation is best. Legit. If we don't believe that, it doesn't matter how many verses we read. It doesn't matter how many ways in which we try to interpret it. It doesn't matter in how many ways we either reward for good behavior or punish for bad behavior. None of that matters if at the, at the foundation of my relationship with God, I do not believe that his design is best. All bets are off. You just do whatever you want. A piece of the puzzle is as it relates to sexual morality in the world around us, people don't actually, not everyone actually believes those first two things. And that sometimes there's a lack of education. That's okay. And sometimes it is a legit rebellion. I do not actually believe that God knows best. If we're honest, that's the seed of sin. Right? The seed of sin isn't, the seed of sin isn't, I want to do evil. The very seed of sin is, I feel like I have a better idea about what this is, so I'm going to go with mine. <laughs> right? That's, that's what we said. That's the first sin, right? Genesis chapter 3. It's like, oh, the fruit is good for eating. It's going to make you wise. Okay, well, God said don't do it. Well, but I'm going to try it anyway because <laughs> my idea is better. <laughs> that's really what that is, right? I know I'm making light of it, but at the, the foundation of every sin, it's that. <laughs> the last thing is if we go specifically here, God's design for human sexuality is best. That requires a unique affirmation in a world in which we are beginning to define human sexuality in ways that are very different than what we see in Scripture. And that will... And that's not new, right? Human sexuality has been defined different than the Word of God for a long time. But it is quite a bit more in our face right now in 2022 than it was in 1822. It's okay for us to be real about that. But if we are to actually help encourage a biblical view of sexual morality, these three things have to be affirmed or we simply encourage a person to be safe. I'm just being honest. I know that makes us feel uncomfortable, right? I know it makes us feel uncomfortable. But if the person doesn't actually believe those things or are not yet willing to believe them, then the best bet you have is to encourage them to be safe. Because everything beyond that is just behavior modification and you really just trying to put them in a box when the truth is it was a part of God's wisdom to give humans the ability to do whatever they want to do. So if they don't want to do what God wants them to do, it is not our job to stop them. Oh, that hurts sometimes. I'm just being real, though. Here's why I'm saying that. Because that's what causes shame in people's lives. 
I'm trying to control your behavior, so I'm going to make it uncomfortable for you to do what I don't want you to do. Yes, it comes from a good place, but it's not the heart and the will of the Father. If the heart and the will of the Father is, if you don't want to do what I give you instructions to do, you don't have to. You will just navigate a life that comes with that. I can't stand in the way of that. That puts me in a position of God, and it creates two things. Makes me an idol and creates anxiety around Jesus. If they don't initially agree with those things, it's okay to just say, okay, well, there isn't much room for a biblical view of sexual morality with what you believe right now. We can keep talking about that, and I can help you work through that and get to a space where you can affirm those beliefs. But if not, let me help you to understand some practices that will keep it so that you don't deal with some negative consequences that you can't come back from. Because that is also a part of the compassion of Christ. It really is. It's a hard, it's a hard space for us. But let me tell you this. If you are more willing to walk with someone through their mess than to abandon them in it, they will see the love of Christ in you when they're ready to come out. And when they're ready to come out, you will be able to say, it's not just me that loves you like this. I love you like this because Jesus loved me like this. And Jesus was willing to not, to not hold me down when I wanted to do wrong. He took his hands off and said, I'm always here when you're ready. That makes us uncomfortable. I get it. But that's why the, that's why the purity movement thing didn't work. That's why it didn't work. If those three things cannot be affirmed, then it's okay to end the conversation right there. And pray. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. And I'm not just saying, God, make them do what you tell them to do. That's not a prayer that I would even want to pray. Pray, Holy Spirit, help them see what they cannot see. Help them, show them what you see. And give me the wisdom and discernment to walk with them well. And the moment then that they begin to affirm those three things, then we can actually start having some real conversations about sexual morality. That's when we can actually have real conversations. So from a biblical standpoint and really from a historic standpoint, we got to talk about um, a couple of things. Uh, most, for the most part, we affirm sex is a thing that happens after marriage. It's okay. The Bible affirms that over and over again. That's something that we know as a part of what looks like to have sexual morality means after marriage. But I think we should also be honest about the fact that there are two things that are a piece of that puzzle. It's not just one. And I think oftentimes we're challenged because we don't actually look at both sides of what marriage is from a biblical and historic standpoint. The practical side of marriage is inheritance. Here's what I mean. Before the late 1900s, as Olivia would say, before the, <laughs> the late 1900s, making us all feel old. <laughs> before the late 1900s, 
There was no scientific way to say this son belonged to that father. The only way that we could practically do that was that there was a committed relationship with a father and a mother that said anything, any baby that comes out of this uterus belongs to that father. Let's just be real. That's practically speaking. I'm not saying that's the spiritual side of it. We're going to talk about the spiritual side. But the practical side of what marriage is, is inheritance. It has more to do with making sure that that how we navigate property, how we navigate what belongs to who and who it belongs and, and when it belongs to them, it has to do with the only way that I can be sure in 1436, in 700 BC, <laughs> the only way I can be sure is that this woman is in a committed relationship to this man. So any sons that come out of this woman are, by definition, able to inherit what has, been, what has belonged to their father. That is where we get the language illegitimate child from. Right? Some of you are like, what? Because we haven't used that word in a long time. <laughs> What it is to historically be, be considered an illegitimate child is there's no way to, to verify who your father is. So there's no way for us to, so you're illegitimate. It's not to say that your life is illegitimate. There's just no way to verify. Most of the time throughout human history, we've kind of put that under the rug and there is a, you know, if, if we are surrounded with some loving fathers, they're like, yeah, it's my son. This is my daughter. Come on in here, right? Whether it's a legal adoption or not. Uh, but sometimes that's also not true. That's not the case. That woman and that child are cast off. This is a part of the, this is a part of the purity movement. See, the purity movement did a good job of telling us what is sexually moral, but not a good job of talking about that. The reason why women have borne the weight of the purity movement is because they have also borne the child that was either legitimately conceived or not, right, using that same language. And the man just gets to be like, yay. <laughs> real. You can't prove it. Ha! <laughs> That's just the truth. Listen, that's why, that's why especially those of us in, the, in like black culture, you're like, yes, we can prove it. Look at that nose. <laughs> listen, listen, that nose right there, that is definitely that baby's daddy. No. <laughs> that was our way of legitimizing babies. <laughs> like, look at that nose. <laughs> them, them tips of them ears, you can tell. He finna be dark-skinned. No. <laughs> Before we had DNA, women really were the ones who bore the weight of that because there was no way for men to do so. And in many ways, men took advantage of that. This is the truth. And without addressing that practical thing, 
then we bring that practical thing into the purity movement too. If we are to talk about the spiritual, I use the word mystical on purpose. I know that for some of us feels like, oh, he's talking about magic. No, spiritual is not exactly the best word for it. It's mystery. The best word for marriage from a biblical standpoint is that it's mysterious in the way in which it works. Paul talks about that mystery in Ephesians chapter 5. He talks about the fact that it points to the relationship that Christ has with the church and, he, and, and the fact that, that the, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband and all things like the body of Christ does to the church. And the, church, and the husband is supposed to love the church, uh, to love his wife the way that the, where Christ loves the church. And it's self-sacrificial. And he's like, listen, it's mysterious. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, basically, with explaining something that happens beyond my view. It's mysterious, and so mystical isn't magic or fake. It's just mysterious. Marriage, from a biblical standpoint, goes beyond just Christ in the church. Even in the Old Testament, God's chosen people have always been, in some ways, metaphorically connected as a bride. Um, it's a part of why, even beginning in Judges, they speak to when the people of God are worshiping other gods, that's called adultery. It's because the bride is cheating on her, her husband. That's, what that, that's the reason for that. It just becomes, it, it has a full manifestation in Christ um, coming. And so as the church, we are in some ways representative. Uh, we are the bride of Christ. Um, and I, this, to continue in that idea of mystery... Um, I've said this before, and I don't even know exactly what this means, but a way in which we can honor women in that is those of you women who are wives, we as husbands need to know what it is to be a bride. And that feels weird to say out loud, but if we to actually live out that mystery well, that means that there's something inside of us that also has to submit and surrender the same way that a wife would, and I don't even know how to do that. And I believe that the Holy Spirit can unveil that mystery in those of you who are wives who have fully committed yourself to living as a biblical wife. And I don't even have words for that fully. I'm telling you, I need help. So if the Holy Spirit gives you words, give them to me. <laughs> But so it's God's, uh, God's chosen people's relationship to God is the mystery side of that. But let's also talk about historic and biblical purposes for sex. There's a practical side of that, procreation <laughs> and pleasure. I know we don't always talk about that in church, but there's a whole book of the Bible that's, that's dedicated to it. Song of Solomon, so many, there's many of us who have learned that Song of Solomon is, like, it's, it's really this metaphor of, like, of Christ in the church. And listen, metaphor or not, it's graphic. <laughs> okay, so if you're not ready for rated R, don't read Song of Solomon because it's very graphic. 
And we, and I think really it's our discomfort with talking about sex that makes us want to say that it's the metaphor between God and his people. Yeah, it can be that, but really it is about a relationship of, a, of the king, Solomon, anticipating um, sexual pleasure with his bride. And her, like, ah, oh, I want this, but I'm uncomfortable wanting this. And all of what comes along with that, it's a great book to really begin to have the conversation of how morality and pleasure in, in the, the sphere of sex are sometimes challenging. It makes it vulnerable and sometimes even awkward. <laughs> There's some awkward moments in Solomon. Um, and if you are a person who, um, who, oh, that's too far. All right, so. <laughs> There's a mystical side to it, too. <laughs> Try not to go there. Listen, okay? Try not to go there. You won't see me blushing. I've said this before. <laughs> you won't see me blushing. <laughs> uh, the summer sun has touched my skin. <laughs> oh, but trust me, I'm blushing. There's a mysterious element here, too. It's rehumanization. And what I mean by that is Adam and Eve we're able to be completely vulnerable with one another. That's why the writer of Genesis points to them being naked and unashamed. It's not that they just hadn't figured out clothes, and we talked about this before here, that there was, that Moses, who is believed to be the author, was pointing to their immense vulnerability and their dependence upon one another. And a relationship of uh, a married relationship where sex is a piece of that puzzle points to what it is to be as close to human as possible when sin is still present. If we've done premarital counseling with me, we have, a, we have this conversation of intimacy. And there are four different ways in which we talk about intimacy. There's physical intimacy, and I'm not talking just about sex. Intimacy being vulnerable space, being vulnerable in a safe space, right? I don't have to cover myself here. I'm safe. So that means to some degree, all of us in this room are experiencing physical intimacy because we're all here with our guards down, right? You didn't come in here with a bulletproof vest. So physically, we are vulnerable to one another, but we trust one another. So there's intimacy that can be forged there. And the more intimate the relationship, the more vulnerable the relationship as well, right? That's, that's how that works. There's, that's physical intimacy. Then there's emotional intimacy, very similar in terms of how that's cultivated. There is psychological intimacy. And then there's spiritual intimacy. And then after we talk about all four of those, then we talk about sex. Because sex is a celebration of having developed that level of intimacy with one another. You know that if you are in a relationship with someone whom you are sexually active with, your mind can be on the other side of town because especially if that psychological intimacy is off. If you're emotionally not there, you're just in the room. Right? It's just a piece of how that works. So if we're going to be honest about God's design for sex, 
then it is to rehumanize us and allow us in a world that I have to always be covered. I got to always be covered emotionally. I got to always be on my guard physically and psychologically and spiritually. This is a person with whom I do not have to be on guard. This is a person with whom I can be completely vulnerable, knowing that they want good for me and I want good for them. And when there is a sexual act that is a piece of that puzzle, that is as close to being Adam and Eve as we're going to get before Christ returns. That's the biblical purpose for sex and the mystical side of it, right? But then there's this also this affirmation of oneness, and that's really when we start to see the Bible talks about the two became one and all of that. It really is that, again, mystical idea of what it is to be joined in sexual intercourse, but also there's a spiritual piece of that. Those of you who also grew up in that, um, uh, that era of purity movement, they use words like soul tie, <laughs> right? You know what a soul tie is, um, and, and then they're... They'd have you uh, paint a picture of you being tied spiritually to a hundred people, <laughs> uh, ultimately to discourage you from having soul ties all around the city. <laughs> That's not a lie. That's not a lie. It's true. It's truth. That's a part of why, from a biblical standpoint, it's not that marriage is like everybody, it's the, it's the end-all, be-all. Actually, sex, healthy sex doesn't hinge on marriage. Healthy sex hinges on our relationship to God. It really does. And because of my relationship to God, God has designed this to work best within this relationship. And the reason it works best within this relationship is because of the intimacy required to actually be fully human and to experience that level of soul connection, you're not actually, you're not even experiencing sex the way God designed it if you're not, if that's not the reality. You don't even get to feel rehumanized. In fact, it further dehumanizes you, right? It's God's design to rehumanize me. Doing it my way dehumanizes me. And now I'm not even as much human as I was when I first came in the room because I have just become a tool for someone else's sexual pleasure and to scratch my own itch. That is not how human beings are designed. We're not designed that way. And that is a part of, and so the purity movement was intent in trying to get us to avoid that, but it didn't talk about that part, (laughs) right? I, I firmly believe that if we talk about this from both sides, then we give people tools to not just avoid something, but actually run towards something, right? Most, for the most part, when we're trying to avoid something, it finds us. And when I'm trying to run towards something, I find it. I want to find what it is to be fully human and to have a relationship in in which my humanity is constantly dragged on the cement, be affirmed. 
We all want that, and we strive for that in our own ways. This is not the only way that God rehumanizes us, but in terms of a purpose for sex, it is. That is something that God, that's a part of God's design for it. And I believe if we share that kind of stuff with people, we give not just wait, 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 wait. We give like, no, I'm actually anticipating feeling a wholeness and a connectedness as a human that I've never felt before. And I know I won't feel just by engaging in sex, right? That's, that's something then that they can own as opposed to just avoiding something, right? So, that's a, so, that, so that lays the foundation for a conversation. First um, Corinthians, the reason why we have to lay that foundation is because when Paul talks to the Corinthians about sex, I honestly believe that that's what's in the backdrop of, of Paul's mind. I do. And if we don't, then we end up using this portion of Scripture in a way that is not the way in which it was designed or intended. I said before, it is a part of God's wisdom that human beings get to do whatever they want, and they navigate the consequences of that per whatever decision they've made. Consequence doesn't just mean punishment. I know some of us have attached those. Consequence is just the natural result. You touch fire, it burns you, period. There's, that's it. That's what that is. You hang out outside with barefoot in the winter, you come, come back in with frostbite. Like, that's what, it's just a natural consequence. Punishment is something completely different. So Paul is, begins to talk about that. Um, these Corinthians know that they have a freedom separate from the law. And he says to them, you say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. That right there. I want to stop there. Because he's about to start talking to them about sexual morality. And I think it's okay for us to know that our world, just like the world of the Corinthians, has really made us to some degree slaves to sex. And here's what I mean by that. We cannot, we cannot go a day without it being in front of us all the time. It just is. It's in every single ad. It's like I, one of the things I hate most about, about game apps is the, the little ads between the, you're around in the game. And there's like, the, like there's somebody who is like, why is... Why are they dressed like that? <laughs> like, why is he, like, all over her like that? Like, can we just get back to the game, please? I was playing Angry Birds, not looking for soft porn. <laughs> That's the world we live in. You have heard this if you've lived in America for more than 10 years. Sex sells? It does. It grabs our attention. We've become a slave to it, even without us being fully aware of it. You say food was made for the stomach, and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. <laughs> but you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Have anybody of you seen the show My 600-Pound Life? 
Um, that's the show I watch anytime I'm in a hotel. <laughs> I don't know why. It just is always on when I'm in a hotel. So there's a lot of different things that the, the individuals who are part of that show, that they, there's trauma that's connected to it. Um, but I want to say that I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul connects this idea of sex and food. Because there is a appetite that we have for both. And it is very easy to be comforted by both. And it's very easy to also allow ourselves to be out of control by both. It is easy for us to become a slave to both and not know it. It's easy for us to have an intimate relationship, not with the person, but with just the sex. It's easy for me to not engage with the purpose of food and just enjoy its pleasures. There's a temptation for me to not engage with the purpose of sex, but just enjoy its pleasures. Paul did that on purpose. And I would say for many of us, if we don't take the time to actually engage with the purpose of sex, then we have a 600-pound life in our sex life connected to traumas, but ultimately pointing to an unhealth in the relationship to the thing. This is not get everybody get fit. This is not everybody snap yourself together sexually. It's just... It's just painting a picture that Paul paints in a way in which we would be able to see more clearly. Paul is doing the same thing here. Our bodies are not made for sexual immorality, but they're made for the Lord, and God cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead in, by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. <clears throat> this is a portion of Scripture that we... Don't always say well. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. Uh, I want to pause there and say not every sexual interaction we have is with a prostitute. I get that. Um, Paul is expressing an extreme idea. Um, but for the sake of being specific about what Paul is expressing, the only reason to engage with a prostitute has to do with the sexual pleasure part not the purpose part, right? You're paying for the pleasure, not paying for the purpose of sex. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say they two are united into one. But a person who is joined to the Lord is one, is one spirit with him. Excuse me. The, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's that whole mystery part of us being the bride of Christ, right? <laughs> Run from sexual sin. Don't walk away slowly. Run. <laughs> but other sin, uh, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, his life, so you must honor God with your body. Paul is talking about sexual, mor sexual morality, and I think we've used this portion of Scripture over time to kind of 
put reins on people as it relates to sex. And I don't really think that's the heart behind what Paul is expressing. And it could just be that that's not the heart that I want him to teach with. I'm going to be honest, okay? We can be honest. I think Paul is aware of both the purpose and the consequences that are connected to sexual immorality. And that's from which the heart that he speaks. And I think that's a part of why he uses the metaphors that he uses. I want us to not miss the opportunity here. The opportunity in front of us when it comes to having the conversation about encouraging each other sex to live a sexually moral life, there is not any amount of fear that's going to overcome that desire for pleasure. It's just not. It's okay for us to be honest about that. You know why? Because those of us who have engaged in premarital sex, you know the consequence ain't that deep. <laughs> Let's just be real. That's, it's okay. For, like, some of us, like some of us was like, oh, I was raised in the purity movement. Like, and, and the moment that I have sex before I'm married, literally God's going to like, he's going to send electric, you know, a, a lightning bolt. And, it's gonna be, and he didn't. <laughs> and you're like, oh. Okay. Well, I didn't die, so <laughs> so here we go. I guess I'm in this now. <laughs> it can't be that we paint extreme pictures. We can't be that we, that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't say run away from sexual immorality. Because the moment that you have sex before you're married, you will have a heart attack. It might be just short and you might live. But he doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He paints the picture of the consequence that's connected to it. It's a sin against your own body. That's it. We might want Paul to say things like God is going to leave you. But he doesn't because it's not true. He, does, he may say things like, if you, have a, if you have a baby out of wedlock, you'll never be able to serve in ministry. It's not true. Nobody will ever want to be with you because you have a, because who's going to want to raise somebody else's kid? It's not true. It's just not true. Those have been things that have been heaped upon, particularly women, to encourage behavior modification and or control, and they have had a good heart behind them. But if we're going to actually live with the wisdom of the Father, it is to just say there's a purpose and there's a reason for this. Living outside of the purpose and the reason for this comes with some consequences, some of which you'll be able to immediately see, but many of which you won't. And some of them you won't even be able to put words to because there is a mystery to what sex is. And that's okay. And, and then at that point, we have to just trust the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit really can do, which is called sanctify. And to sanctify means to make like Christ. I cannot make anybody not have sex. I can't. And the moment that I try to, 
they begin to see Jesus as someone who is choking out their free will. When that has never been the way that the Father has ever worked. If we need an example of that, a person comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be saved? He says, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And the man walks away. If it was Jesus' desire to make people do what he wanted them to do, he would not have been able to walk away. (laughs) That's not the will of the Father, and we cannot take that on ourselves. Those of us who've been walking for a while and we've lived that, we know intimately what the consequences are. We may be able to say it out loud. Oh, this is what my life has been and because of that. And that's okay for us to share that, but... Ultimately, we have to trust the Holy Spirit in their development and not desire a control that not even Jesus took. (laughs) That's not the Holy Spirit if you're trying to control somebody like that, right? It's okay for us to know that. That's just me. (laughs) So some things that I would always tell people, because God made it, sex is good. That's not graphic. It just is what it is. God, when God created things, he literally, after every single day, he said, it's good. (laughs) It's good. It's good. (laughs) Right? It's good. When he made humans, that's very good. (laughs) Because God made it, sex is good. It's okay also for us to know that just about everything that's good has been marinated in and corrupted by sin. It is not sex that is bad. Sex is not evil. Sex is not something to be avoided. It has a place and a purpose in which it is to be fully embraced and cultivated. I talk, when in our household, we talk about sex with the kids like um, fire, not in a weird way, but it's just to say fire has a purpose and it is good. And when we are irresponsible with it, it can cause harm. Sex has a purpose, and it is good. And when we're irresponsible with it, it can cause harm. That's just the beginning of a conversation, not about how to. It's just laying the groundwork. Sex is good because God made it, period. And just like everything else God made, God made it with a purpose. And if we are going to actually experience all the good that comes along with it, it will be based upon his design for it. Right? The next thing that I would also say um, is premarital self-discipline is practice for self-discipline in marriage. Because we've hinged sexual morality on marriage, not only does it have some anxiety for people who get married as virgins, they don't even like, they're like that sexual period of like, don't even kiss. So the first kiss is awkward as a mug at the wedding. <laughs> it's like, ah. <laughs> but also, if their whole life they've believed sex to be bad, that's not a light switch to turn on all of a sudden. Even if I want to engage sexually if I've put up all of these barriers to keep myself away from it, 
by the time I actually can, I'm just still anxious about it. But we don't talk about the truth is premarital self-discipline as it relates to sex is just practice for the self-discipline that comes along with it when you're married. If you're married and, and you're trying to live a monogamous life, it all it's not to say, like, you're married now, so all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. No, you can't. <laughs> and in many ways, it's actually harder. One of the things that, that I remember being um, young and married, um, and I did, um, like, I was a virgin when I, was, when I got married. Um, and so many people, so many young brothers that I would talk with, they would, like, man, you can't, you, can't, you don't know anything about what it is to, like, have to navigate sexual temptation. Like, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and, it's, and the consequences of falling outside of God's design for sex in marriage are actually heavier than they are when you're single. Just consider how many lives are interrupted when a spouse cheats on somebody. If there are children involved, lives are interrupted. It's the consequences are heavier. So self-discipline before marriage just helps to prepare you for self-discipline after. It's not to say that you get married and ushered into a place of complete freedom. No. In actuality, you have quite a bit more that you need to be controlled about. And your rehearsal beforehand prepares you for that. It prepares you for that. And then the last thing, and then we'll um, pray. Keep both purposes in mind when teaching God's design for sex. One without the other is going to, is going to create a space of, of um, either shame um, or anxiety or uh, complete rebellion. I was talking, uh, Christine and I were talking about this last night. Um, I because we've been talking about the Roe versus Wade thing, which I know a lot of people have been talking about, and this sermon isn't about that. But, uh, but just from the standpoint of sex has been a part of humans' lives from the beginning. But the ability to only process pleasure in sex without purpose and or all the things is really new for us. And what I mean by that is we've only been able to do that for like, what, six generations in terms of contraceptive and all of those things, like we don't, like we don't have a mastery as humans to just talk about the pleasure of sex without all of the things that come along with it. And that's a part of why we heap shame on women. That's a part of why we're having conversations about abortions, a part of why we're having, con because we just don't legitimately as a species have a framework for processing only one part of sex, but we keep trying to. <laughs> We keep trying to only process the pleasure part and figuring out ways to only navigate the pleasure part. Men, we have done that for a very long time. Only wanting to navigate the pleasure part. And that's a part of why it's a struggle when we're, ex when we're seeing now also women processing the pleasure part. And I don't want to be connected to the other pieces of that puzzle. 
But as humans, the way we carry this together is that we carry both parts with us at all times. Sex is a pleasurable thing, yes. But it also has a purpose. Part of the purpose is pleasure, but it's a part of it. You will will never be fully engaged in what God designed for this unless we process all of it together. So that's the way in which we encourage sexual morality, not to just deny one part, but to encourage each other to see the whole. So let's pray. Father, thank you, uh, because you designed sex. It's good. Holy Spirit, make us comfortable as your um, people to talk about what you've made. Give us vocabulary that honors you. Give us understanding that honors you. But ultimately, Father, we want to be your witnesses in the earth, not just in our um, sexual purity, but also in our compassion in our interaction about it. You are not a God of one side of anything. (laughs) That's just the truth. You hold the tension of all of this so masterfully. Teach us how to do that. The anxiety that we carry about the conversation of sex, remove that from us. Give us wisdom instead. There's times to talk about it and there's times not to. Give us wisdom to know how to do that. Help us to not shut down the conversation, but to enter into it, into all of the awkwardness of it, just like you, Jesus, entered into all the awkwardness of what it is to be human. Holy Spirit, Our sisters have carried much of the weight for this. Free them now. Free your daughters from the weight. And no freedom that you have ever given has been to our detriment. So we trust you with the freedom that you give. But also, Holy Spirit, free your sons, Father. Because we have also become a slave to the pleasure part. Teach us as your people how to carry what you have designed to see all of its good and to encourage us to live in the design that you have. Because when we live as you design. You are glorified, and the world is blessed, period. The world is blessed when we glorify you with every part of our lives, so we surrender. Teach us how to love you well. Teach us how to live well. Where there has been condemnation, replace it with the course correction of what it is to be followers of you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.